Well, good morning. Um, happy to be here. Um, and also, those that have joined online, we're so glad that you're part of our time together today. Um, it feels like a homecoming, but it also doesn't because there, I don't know most of the faces. There's a lot of new people here, which is exciting. So I think the church is growing. Um, my first time with LMCC was in 2015, and I spoke at a weekend retreat down in Princeton. I want to know how many were at that just to see. Okay, so you can see how many new people there are. There's three of you. I'm going to ask you after what I talked about. See if you actually remember. Actually, um, what I talked about is I gave four messages. I called them Lessons on the Lake. And it was times that Jesus was either on the shore or out in a boat and stuff happened. Um, some of the most exciting things. And so this last year, I was excited to actually go to Israel for the first time. We had a group of about 43 or 4 people that came from the church in Michigan. My wife and I got to teach at different locations. So I did several on the Sea of Galilee uh, where I talked about the storm. I'm out in a boat. I was glad the storm didn't actually come, but it was, a, it was exciting. Uh, but one of the things we did is we went to what is believed to be the location of the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to actually start with a commercial. And by the way, I'm glad I get to go first of the four, because that would be really hard to be the fourth one coming in. But um, I'm going to actually try to engage LMCC in a campaign that I've started. And right now, there's only two of us in this campaign. I've been working on it for a long time. And that is I actually want to change the name from Sermon on the Mount to Message on the Mount. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to make a case for it right now before I jump into my actual message. So most people skip over Matthew 5, verse 1. That's where the Sermon on the Mount begins, Matthew 5, 1. And here's what Matthew wrote down as this begins. He said, now when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So try to picture that, what I just read from Scripture. He saw a crowd, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, and who came? His disciples, and he taught them. Because every picture or imagination I ever have of the Sermon on the Mount, there are literally thousands of people, every movie ever made shows thousands of people gathering around him, and he's standing up and he's walking around teaching. Now, sometimes they have him sitting. But one of the questions over the years has been, and scholars have debated, how do you speak without a microphone like this? to thousands of people, and especially if you're sitting down. So probably what was actually going on here is that Jesus was with the crowd all the time. Every now and then we know he would get away from the crowd, usually to go up in the mountain and pray. So he leaves the crowd, but his disciples follow him, and he sits down and he teaches them. And that's only important for this reason. I believe that what we're going to look at in the next four weeks is really kind of the, the most important thing of everything Jesus said. This is what the incarnation, the story of Jesus, the good news, the gospel is about. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or Luke chapter 6. This is a really big deal. This is really important. And he was training his disciples, just like we're being trained here at LMCC these next four weeks, to take the message of God into the world and pass it on and go make disciples. And making disciples would be doing the same thing Jesus did with them. Teach them this. Teach this is the way of life. And that's what we're going to be diving in today. So um, the other reason why, as I don't, I grew up not liking the word sermon because, uh, by the way, the, the music was so phenomenal this morning. I have to say, I, like, I didn't feel like I needed anything else. I got what I needed today to be brought into the presence of God. And I kind of forgot that the music here, every time I've been here, you blend new and old. I grew up with all, these, all the old hymns, but they were usually followed by a man who seemed angry, pointing the finger, and we were all bad, full of sin, yelling at us, and that was a sermon, just endured the sermon. Kind of like um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, called the greatest Protestant sermon ever written. If you read that thing, it's downright scary. 
Apparently, at the end of the sermon, everybody was writhing on the ground. That's not my goal today, to get you writhing on the ground. So I don't do sermons. I do messages. And I think it also has better alliteration, message on the mount. Picture Jesus. Every time you think about this now, sermon on the mount, picture Jesus sitting and talking and really training his disciples. So um, I'm trying to spread the word. We're going to create a, a, a change, a grassroots change around the country and around the world that we're going to rename this. And we're going to know it started right here in Lower Manhattan at Lower Manhattan Community Church because I've not shared this publicly at all. First time right here. I can tell from your faces you're just not buying it. So <laughs> that's quite all right. But you're going you're gonna to hear me say message on the mount many times in the next uh, approximately 30 minutes. And I'm actually going to start my watch because at my church in Michigan, they have a big clock that counts down. And when you're done, they threaten to cut off the mic. So they're not going to do that here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be on time today. So, so I'm going to give you a roadmap because I find um, in teaching, even to be attentive for 20 or 30 minutes can be hard today. Um, and people grab, pull out their phones and start doing phone stuff. And so I'm going to give you a roadmap of where we're going today. Really, I'm going to ask three questions and answer them uh, as we jump into this first uh, week on the Sermon on the Mount or the Message on the Mount. So what is the gospel? I'm going to define the gospel again. The good news that's proclaimed in scripture. And then how does the gospel, question two, relate to the Sermon on the Mount or message on the Mount? And then finally, what is our response to this message? What are we supposed to do with it? We're not going to jump into specific teachings much within the message on the Mount, these three chapters in Matthew. Uh, one, I'm going to draw one thing from it at the very end when I answer the question, what is our response to be to this? So um, this is how it all began for me. I was five years old. And I was in Sunday school, and this was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it was a typical basement of a church. This is not a typical church, um, but the churches were all the same back then. This was a Baptist church, and then they had a basement, they had tile floor, and they had accordion doors like you have down here where the kids meet, and they would divide the basement into a bunch of little classrooms. So I was five or six years old, and I can still picture, I'm going to be 68 this summer, so think about how long this is ago this happened. This is a vivid memory for me, and this is my introduction to Christianity and what the good news is. So there was a man, he was bald, he had glasses, he was tall. I guess when you're five, everybody's tall, but I'm sitting on the floor with a bunch of kids, and he, he begins a lesson, and it, this is how he started it. He said, how many of you have ever been burned, like, by something hot? He'd raise your hand. And so we raise our hands, and he would call on us, and we would share our stories. And I can still remember some of them. Someone pulled a cup of hot coffee off the counter and it got on them and they had to go to ER. Mine was we were camping and we were roasting marshmallows and I grabbed the stick after it came out of the fire on the wrong end. And I got an actual imprint on my hand of the stick and it hurt so bad. And I was crying. I went to my mom and it, you know what they actually did back then? They put butter on burns. I have no idea why, but that's what they did. Um, and so I was in pain. So we all tell our horror stories and there were a bunch of them, and we got all worked up about how bad it is to get burned by something hot. And then the teacher actually said this. It might be hard to believe. This would be kind of abusive today. But he said, okay, so I want to tell you that the good news from the Bible. The good news is that, well, it's bad first. Um, you all have sin. You all do things wrong. And because of that, when you die, you're going to be burned forever over your whole body, every square inch. And there's no butter and there's no nothing that's coming ever. Wide-eyed terror. And then he said, but the good news is that if you pray this prayer and accept Jesus, then that won't happen. How many would like to pray the prayer? 100% conversion. <laughs> that right. I got my, I think my hand went up first. 
Now, unfortunately, my parents mitigated a lot of what we heard there, and eventually we ended up in a different church. But literally, I had, I had nightmares for at least a year of me falling into fire and stuff and burning. And the idea is that God will create a new kind of body that isn't consumed by fire so that he can torture you forever. That was the good news. That was the gospel. And really, that version of the gospel, even though it's not as morbid as that, I think the gospel gets reduced and for me, it's taken me many years to think bigger and more broadly about the good news, reduced to um, taking care of your eternity. It's, a, it's news about what happens when you die. And I'm gonna, you're going to see this as we move into the message on the mount, that the good news is much more beautiful and broader and more compelling and inviting and engaging because the good news is much more than just what happens when you die. But I believe I see the, the early indications that we were going to go there in Christianity to make it about a death message instead of Jesus came to, that we would have life to the full now. Instead of that, it was more about let's take care of what happens when you die, which of course is really good news, but it's much more than that. So I want you to think with me, if you know the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, and right, right before he ascended, he commissioned his disciples to now go and tell everybody this good news, and then he ascended to heaven. Now, do you know what happened immediately after he ascended to heaven? The disciples that were present were told we're looking into the sky. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of liberty with this. This is not, if you go to Acts chapter 1, you're not actually going to not see all this, but I have a vivid imagination. And so I don't know how long they looked, but I call that heaven gazers, heaven gazing, which is what Christianity can easily become. We're just looking for his return. We're looking for the ultimate redemption and restoration as we should. But we live our life looking to the sky. We don't see what's in front of us, which is such a central part of the good news. So I, I pictured them looking in the sky and the, the angels were sent back to see what they were doing. This is now my paraphrase and my imagination. They went back and they reported back, yeah, they're staring in the sky. And so they go back again. Yeah, they're still staring in the sky. They go back again. You know, this just goes on. They're still looking in the sky where Jesus ascended. We do know this. The scripture says that the angels did say something to them. And I, I looked in front of a mirror and tried to practice a Brooklyn accent. And I can't do it. It comes out more Italian than Brooklyn. But I like to picture the angels finally saying, this is what they actually say to them. Probably not in this way, but they said, what are you looking at? Because that's what they said to them. Why are you staring into the sky? And so this is what I see the corrective that happened right away. I picture this. I picture um, basically very gently Jesus through the angels taking their face and doing this. It's here and now. It's right now. Yeah, that's coming. But haven't you paid attention for the last three years how I taught you how I instructed you, what I said what life was about. It's much broader than that. What is the gospel? The gospel, as I said, is much more than just a message, as, as one writer called it, um, the gospel of sin management. He does take care of our sin, but he has a vision for this world that's right now, in the here and now. In the Sermon on the Mount, is, uh, message on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer, which we, we pray together sometimes. And what does he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. He has a vision for us on earth. He has a vision for life on earth. And it is expressed fuller than any other place in Scripture in these three chapters in Matthew, in the one chapter in Luke, which we call the message on the mount. It's his vision for humanity. 
You know, I grew up with a song in my church. I hope you guys never sing it here. I hope no one ever sings this song anywhere, ever, again. And it goes like this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, oh Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's glory shore. Like, come now. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's not the gospel. The gospel is understanding that this is our home right now and that God has a vision for it. The incarnation story itself teaches us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That God himself didn't send a check or send an emissary or a missionary. God came himself into our mess, into this world to bring, begin to bring redemption. And think about this, for 33 years, or 30 years, he, no one even knew God was in the neighborhood. He lived among us. And then the last three years of his life, he began to teach and began to do. And he showed us through his actions and through his words what it means to be fully human, to be fully alive. And that, all of that, the whole story of the incarnation is what the gospel is. It starts now. Eternal life starts now. Do you know how um, eternal life is defined in the Bible? It's only defined one place. It, the, word the word is there quite a bit, but what is eternal life? Jesus defined it in John 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's knowing God. Do you wait to go to heaven for that to begin? No, it begins now. Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And that is the challenge of life now. It starts now. And it manifests itself knowing God in a very particular way of living. I want you to say the word way right now with me. Ready? Way. Say it again. Say it one more time. All right. So the good news is about a way. John 14, 6, of course, I learned when I was a kid that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But we always interpret the way as the way to get to heaven. That's like very, very small part, important part, but small part of what the way is. The way is a way of living. So the good news has a heavy focus on life now, and that is all part of the gospel. And we embrace it now. The way is articulated in the message on the mount that we're going to look at for the next four weeks. And I want to call it, so the second question now, so that is, what is the gospel? It's broad. It's about life. It's about abundant life. It's about knowing God. And the way we do that, the way we live that out now is, is laid out very clearly and very succinctly in the message on the mount. And I just want to say as, a, as confession um, that I lived a good part of my life not taking it seriously. It's good teaching. It's good stuff. But never actually made a point of, I'm going to read this over and over again, and I'm going to look in the mirror and see how I measure up, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to show me how I'm doing, of living this out. So let's move into the next section now. So the message on the mount, what is the way? This is what I call the Jesus way. And as I said, the incarnation itself tells us that way through how he lived and how he chose to live. But I want to give you, show you two scriptures um, that show up in the book of Acts. There's actually more than just these two, and they also show up in the letters, where there was a nickname given to early Christians. And I love this nickname for its clarity and its simplicity, because it tells me as someone who wants to follow Jesus what, what it would look like. So in the book of Acts, we see in chapter 9, where Saul, right before Saul became uh, converted to Jesus, um, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues to Damascus 
that if he found any there who belonged to the way, etc. They called this group, ragtag group of early Jesus followers, they nicknamed them the way. These are people of the way. Again, in uh, 10 chapters later in the book of Acts, um, about that time there rose a great disturbance about the way. What if we were known as people of the way? You said, are, who, what, what do you believe? What's your faith? Well, I'm a, I'm a person of the way. Well, what does that mean? They were going to ask you what that means. You say the way of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, let, let's start with Matthew 5. Because this is where the way of Jesus is laid out for us. Instead of really looking at Christianity as a set of doctrines and beliefs that we give mental assent to, which of course we do, defined equally as people who now enter into a way of life. Because I don't believe God ever saw a separation and sees a separation between the two. He doesn't scan our brains to make sure we have the, the right doctrine and say, okay, you're good to go. He says, are you living in the way? I came to show the way, to teach the way, to demonstrate the way, to model the way. I always heard, as I said, the way, the truth, and the life as a way to heaven. I think it's so much more beautiful than that. It's, it's really a way for us to live. I would call the, the Sermon on the Mount the, the magnus opus or the magna carta or I'm trying to think if I know any other um, words, Latin words. I don't think I do. But this is it, man. This is it. I think if everything else got stripped away and we lost it all but we had the, we had the sermon or the message on the mount, we would be good to go because this is where he distilled, as Phil said introducing this, this is the longest sermon. This is the main teaching of Jesus. All of his other teachings, mostly in parables, are spread out through the Gospels when something else is going on. He's healing someone or he's trying to instruct them, mostly in, mostly in stories or parables. And there are stories that are parables in the message on the mount, but there's also really clear, challenging, robust teaching where Jesus said, this is how I want you to live. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, said it far better than I could say it. If you just Take a moment to consider what he writes about this. He says, The Sermon on the Mount is God's agenda for kingdom people. It's the way in which Jesus wants to rule the world. He wants to do it through this sort of people. What sort of people? The people that are described in these chapters. People actually just like himself. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to Jesus' followers to take up their vocation as light to the world, as salt to the earth, in other words, as people through whom Jesus' kingdom vision is to become a reality. This is how people through whom the victory of Jesus over the powers of sin and death is to be implemented in the wild, wider world. Now, I don't know if you feel the weight of that. I feel the weight of that when I read that. Like when I walk out of here today and, and we're going to go over to Communitas and I'll be there at 1 o'clock. Um, it'll be a very different gathering. We'll have um, men, mostly men and women, who are homeless, I feel the weight of that. I feel that what matters more than anything is not my words, but it's my life. And the message on the mount is a way of living. It's the Jesus way. It matters more than just about anything else that we could give our time to. When I think about uh, N.T. Wright's words, I think he says, Jesus wants to do it through this sort of people. And so am I that sort of person? Am I becoming that sort of person? Am I one who really takes it seriously? And I think, you know, this is my judgment of, of Christianity as a whole, is that we've done a very poor job of this. And I'm going to put myself in that group 
for a good part of my life. I've been in ministry since I was 22 years old, when I, uh, 20, maybe 24 when I got out of seminary. I was in ministry in seminary, but I preached some of the worst sermons ever given on planet Earth. I'm glad they didn't record them back then because they, they would be quite embarrassing. But I've been doing this a long time, but, but I would say a long time. It was about knowledge, about doctrine, about defending the truth. And I don't think I was a person that looked an awful lot like the message on the mount kind of person. Jesus does not have a plan B. Plan B doesn't work. His plan, his only plan, is to cultivate a group of men and women and children who say, yes, I will follow you. And then over time, we begin to look like Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because that will change our lives and our communities, and that will change the world. There was a Gallup poll a number of years ago, and this is where the judgment comes um, this is about 15 to 20 years ago, and there was a ton of questions, and they were exploring Americans' faith was, was part of the, the survey. So one of the questions they asked, and you had to write down your top five, they said, when you hear the word Christian, what words come to mind? Now, this was not of people of faith somewhere in it, but it was broadly all across the country. Top five were all negative. Judgmental, angry, intolerant, hypocritical. Those are the kind of words that showed up. And then later on in the survey, not the very next question, later on, buried deeper in the survey, they said, when you hear the name Jesus, what comes to mind? Not one negative. Peaceable, graceful, forgiving, kind, generous. And the, the book I was reading that cited the survey, the author posed this question. He said, what in the world has happened that Christianity is looked at so different than its founder. How do we get this gap? And I read that, like I said, 15, 20 years ago with a lot of conviction. I wondered, how would people that know me the best define me? What words would they use? How would my neighbors define me? How would my coworkers define me? Do I look more like the Christian list or more like the Jesus list? And if you want to be like the Jesus list then you have to follow the Jesus way in the message on the mount tells us the Jesus way. The Jesus way will produce a certain kind of person that will be transforming of our communities and of our world. So that's all foundational stuff. What is the gospel? It's good news for life and afterlife. But we are called to have a certain kind of life now. What is the relationship between the gospel and the message on the mount? The message on the mount these three chapters in Matthew, this one chapter in Luke, this defines it more clearly than anything else. I would, I would actually say that if I could start over and go back maybe 40 years, um, as I move into ministry, I would say that every day I would get up and I would read the message on the mount, I would meditate on it, and then I would use it at the end of my day as a, di a diagnostic tool, openly before God, how am I doing? What kind of person was I today? How did people experience me? Did they really see Jesus in me? Jesus, did they see your way in me? Am I, am I really a person of the way? The way to live. It's right there in front of us. It's so clear. So what is our response? Third question, last question. What is our response to this? Well, interestingly, at the very end of this message, at the end of chapter 7, Jesus tells us exactly what our response is to be. He tells us exactly what the point is, and he does it in a, another story or a parable. This is another one, a song that I learned in Sunday school. I wish I could sing this one to you. 
Anybody know A Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock, that song? It came with motions and everything. A few of you see mostly gray-haired or no-haired people in here <laughs> are admitting that. But it's a song that I, I sang over and over again. I loved it because it had all these hand motions. So the wise man built his house upon the rocks, and it was firm, and the storm came, and in the, in the, it stood strong. And the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the storm came, and it, it fell down. And we would all collapse the house with our hand motions. We got all excited. Had no clue what I was singing about at all because I'm not building a house. I don't know what this is about. So when you hear this, think about instead of house, Jesus is through this metaphor analogy. It says, is saying that you are building a life. Every one of us is building a life. We're building a structure that is our life. So how are we building it? So at the very end, now think about for three chapters now, at this point I think it's about 82 verses in the message on the mount. He's going to finish it up now with these words. So be, let's be his disciples. Let's picture we're now... Because, by the way, the disciples were more than just the 12. They were apostles. So when it says the disciples were around him, it could have been 50 or 100. But it was a smaller group. Let's just imagine that that's us today. And we've been sitting with Jesus. He's sitting. So picture this in your mind. And he begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are, and he goes through the Beatitudes, and then he dives into some really weighty stuff about judging people, about um, being peacemakers, about turning the other cheek, et cetera, et cetera. He's, he's now taught us this. He's encouraging us. He's raising the bar. He's saying, this is, this is the kind of people I'm looking for to join me in my kingdom to change the world. So he lays all this out, and then he gets to the very end, and I don't know how long it took him, but it might have only been about 30 minutes to go through all of this. And then at the very end of the message, he shares the story. He says, part one, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine, whose words? Jesus. Which words? The ones he just shared. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, there's the point. And if you do that, you're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. You want a stable life that can withstand upheaval, disappointment, pain, suffering, storms? He says, be a man or woman who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. You know who Jesus is looking for? Men and women who will hear his words and put them into practice. Sermon on the Message on the Mount has no value if we're not people who hear them and put them into practice. Imperfectly, but increasingly more so. So you're building a life. I'm building a life. What kind of life? What if we built it on these words of Jesus? And then part two. We like this one better in the song because we got to have the house fall down at the end in our motions. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. This is how much Jesus loves us. You know, when he called the first disciples, he actually did it with two words. I remember sharing this at, um, in 2015 at the retreat conference for, for LMCC. Two simple words, follow me. Huh, what, what does that following look like? 
Matthew 5 through 7. That's who he's looking for, men and women who say, yes, I'll follow you, and then we actually follow him. Let's take an example of how this would play out. Maybe, maybe in the next three weeks, this is where one of the pastors is going to go. This is maybe the best, some of the best-known teaching uh, of Jesus in the message on the mount. He said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, anybody knows what follows? Turn the other cheek. That has come into our vocabulary, even outside of Christianity, to turn the other cheek. So what is the outcome of either failing to follow that or following that? Well, um, Gandhi, who is, um, I, I've been working in India for 23 years. I was part of a group that started a nonprofit there, and we serve orphans and widows and the poor, et cetera. And I've going there every year for 23 years. I've gotten to know the culture, and they really do love Gandhi there. He brought about the revolution of independence in India without any bloodshed. You know how he did it? He tells us how he did it. He read the message on the mount as a Hindu every day of his adult life. Every morning he began reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he was interviewed one time, and he said, you know, I love your Christ, but I don't very much love your Christians. Out of his mouth, he committed himself to reading the message on the mount, and when he was asked, what would solve the problems between Great Britain and India? He picked up a Bible in this interview, opened it to Matthew chapter 5, and he said, when your country and my shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in this Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved not only the problems of our countries, but most of those of the whole world. Here's a man who got it, and he lived it, and that's why they got their independence, because they didn't get up sword. Why? Because an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, this is also one of his famous quotes, an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. So if we follow his teachings, what do we do? We de-escalate violence. We don't return anger with anger. If we, if we don't follow Jesus' teachings, we're going to not turn the other cheek. We're going to slap back. We're going to pull the tooth. We're going to get even. We're going to have retribution. And you know what that will do? History tells us that will escalate violence. So the one that hears these words of mine, he says, and puts them into practice, will build a solid life. So can we actually follow Jesus? That's the point of the message on the mount. And if you read it, there's 92 verses, and 15 of the 92... Um, almost one-sixth of this message are actually a challenge to actually put it into practice, not just the one I read at the end. S sprinkled throughout all, Jesus calls us to do what he's actually saying, to actually be doers who actually do it. So I'm going to pose a question. What if people of the way, that's us, were known as enemy-loving, other-cheek-turning, extra-mile-going, cloak-giving, forgiving, light-shining, salt-dispensing peacemakers. And I just pulled a few things out of the message. Let me say it again. What if we really were known as enemy-loving, cheek-turning, extra-mile-going, cloak-giving, forgiving, light-shining, salt-dispensing peacemakers? What if that's how followers of Jesus, people of the way, were known? One of my other favorite writers because the last thing I just want to say is this is not about behavior modification. I guarantee you, you cannot simply read this and then just do it. There's too much pushback within our own flesh for this. This is a work of God in us. And if I had week two where I could come in, I would share more about this. But I just want to reference uh, Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. This is what he says. 
the assumption of Jesus' program for his people on earth was that they would live their lives as his students and co-laborers. They would find him so admirable in every respect, as we just sang in our worship. Wise, beautiful, powerful, and good, that they would constantly seek to be in his presence and be guided, instructed, and helped by him in every aspect of our lives. We can't live out the message on the mount unless we are living in intimate union with Jesus, and we're seeking that. We're taking John 15 seriously. We're going to abide with him because he said, if you remain in me, abide with me, you will bear fruit, but without me, you can do nothing. So this is a challenge. The bar is high. I read it. I'm challenged. I'm convicted. I do use it as a diagnostic tool. At the end of my day, was, where was I not a peacemaker? Where did I retaliate? Where did I harbor anger in, in my heart? It's, there's so much in these three chapters to help us along the way. And then I usually pray, um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And now help me when I wake up tomorrow, because I do want to follow you. I want to be a man of the way. I want to sit at your feet as you sat and taught us. And then I want to be that wise man who is putting these words into practice and actually living it out. And I know that as I do it more and more along the way, that there will be a realm of influence around me. Because when Jesus said, when the angel said, don't stare in heaven, you have work to do, this is the work for us to do. The work is to live out the message of Jesus because what we do has far more impact than what we say. How we live draws people to Jesus. And the good news is that God is not far off. He's not unknowable. He's not unknown. He's here. He's with us. And the way of life is to learn how to be with him. You know, discipleship, and then I'm going to pray. This is my last word. And I have one minute and 11 seconds left, so I can say this. The, the goal of life really is to learn how to be with Jesus so that we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. I would, I've, I've helped implement discipleship programs um, in churches, many churches over the years of my ministry. And I really, after all the books I've read, all the study, everything I've done, I really distill it to that one sentence. The invitation is this, to learn how to be with Jesus. That's hard in New York City, by the way. When I lived in the Midwest, it was quiet. I, go, I, I walk through big cities. I was just in Detroit, downtown Detroit, a few days ago, and there, there wasn't anybody there. There's not crowds and noise. Um, I live in Brooklyn now. It's noisy there, too. Just noise. But to learn, learn how to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And if that's really what we understand, what we've been invited to when Jesus said, follow me, and we said, we said yes to him, then transformation will come not only in our lives, but around us, the sphere of influence, the kingdom. The kingdom of God will grow as we bring that reality of God in us and with us. And so, um, Jesus, I've, I've said a lot of words, and I just pray you'll take the ones that are right and true, and you will um, burn them into our hearts. Um, draw us into the beauty of who you are, um, as, we, as we enter into a period of remembering your life and your death for us. Draw us into the beauty of who you are, your great love for us, and the vision you have for each of us. As I think about um, the faces I've been looking at these last moments, I know how deeply you love each one, and I know that you have a vision for their life that is beautiful and good. And I pray that you will lead each of us along that path. I pray this in your name. Amen.